James Hahn II. And I'm Mark LaCour. And you're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast brought to you by Red Wing. This is the show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Bonus episode 63. Welcome in, Mark LaCour. Why are we recording yes, a bonus? What, what is, what's going on here? Tell, tell the folks. Yeah, so James and I, in our infinite wisdom between the two of us, accidentally recorded the wrong show. <laughs> we forgot to record the first Friday Q&A. Um, so you get an extra show this week uh, because we're just a bunch of knuckleheads sometimes. Yeah, so big, big shout out to our friend Mark Pillsbury over at ConocoPhillips, who I, I was texting back and forth yesterday. He said, I can't wait for the Q&A show. And thankfully, Mark's schedule was clear this morning and we are recording and releasing these things at the same time. So bonus episode for y'all. We have way, way too many questions. Not way too many. Thank you to everyone who submitted. I love the first Friday Q&A. We're going to start it off with Jeffrey Larson. He didn't give us a company or a position, but here are his questions. And we're going to take them one at a time, if that's right, Mark. Yeah, let's do it one at a time. All right, cool. Good evening. I'm sending some more questions for the first Friday Q&A. First, a question that I've asked before but haven't got an answer. Number one. So stop there. So we apologize, Jeffrey. I don't know how it slipped through the cracks. Um, it happens. <laughs> so if you, if you don't hear a response from us, uh, whether we read it on the show or not, send it again. Yeah, thank you very much for resubmitting. First question, and we've got five. So offshore wind is coming to the coast of Virginia Beach, Virginia. There are efforts to expand this to offshore drilling by some of the leadership in the state. What can you share about any knowledge you have on progress for offshore drilling off the east coast of the U.S.? Yeah, basically it's a mess, right? There's a reserves out there. Whether they're recoverable in uh, today's crude price environment, nobody knows. Um, there's been some drilling out there, right? So uh, south of Florida going toward Cuba, there's some reserves, and then up north, uh, going toward Canada in the Atlantic, there's some reserves, and, and we know it's there. So the, the issue is that those Atlantic states did not negotiate their mineral rights as well as the Gulf Coast states. So uh, on the Atlantic coast, each state only owns um, three nautical miles. That's their territory. Oh, that's, three, yeah. What's yeah, it like in the Gulf Coast? I'm sorry? What's it like in the Gulf Coast? Because we have 100. more than, oh, okay, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Big yeah. difference. Yeah, and so um, from three to 200 miles, the federal government owns, right? And so most of the reserves are in that federal water that's off the Atlantic coast. Now, if if companies would go in and, and go it, drill and go into production, of course, those states would, would receive some revenue, and they would also receive all the revenue from the people and the, uh, the industry that would move to their states. The problem is is that um, our, um, our Interior Secretary, Ken Salzer, uh, uh, um, announced a ban on any federal waters in the Atlantic coast through 2017. So nobody can drill from a federal point of view till after 2017. And so nobody's actually going out there and exploring anything. There's there's probably a lot of jobs, and a lot of money that could be made out there. Um, and you know, we're at the point now where we can do this safely and effectively. Um, and it, but it's just, it's become a political nightmare with, with a lot of opposition that was unexpected from those states. And some of those states have, their economy is really suffering. You'd think they'd want the money and the prosperity. Um, and I think part of it's a bit of a political spin by the anti-oil and gas movement 
Um, and, and unfortunately, a lot of the public uh, buys into some of the stuff out there. It's just not true. But that's what's going on in, in the um, in, um, on the east coast of the U.S. And um, but shout out Jeffrey. I spent a little bit too much time in Norfolk, Virginia, uh, years ago. A beautiful, beautiful, beautiful state. Very beautiful state. I my sister lived out in Washington D.C. for a while, and she fell in love with it out there. And one of the things that I'm a little concerned about, obviously, is the ban. But one thing that comes to mind is a story that we talked about a few episodes ago, more than a few, I think, where there was 100 million barrels discovered in the Gulf. And you you just, man, all I can think is how much oil is there and how much prosperity could be driven if only, if only not for the political environment. Yeah, and, and and honestly, that oil's gonna come from somewhere. You know, if your state doesn't want to participate, we're happy to punch holes in the ground here in the Gulf Coast and make money. All right, kicking off with number two, your most recent Q and A show mentioned that the U.S. will be able to cripple OPEC due to how much oil we will be able to push out in the future. Will China be able to do something similar? Are they a nation full of untapped oil reserves? If so, would China be able to or willing be or willing to join OPEC to counter the U.S. market dominance? Yeah, this is a good slant I've never thought of before. So first thing is China has a lot of reserves. How much? Nobody knows because China doesn't tell the truth. And they don't have the seismic uh, technology that we have and, and also because – the government owns all the minerals versus here in the U.S. where people own the minerals. There's not the economic incentive to go out there and, and survey from a seismic point of view the entire country. But they have reserves. They actually have a lot of shale reserves. Uh, now, whether they're recoverable or not, we don't know because, once again, we can't get the truth out of China. Um, would they join OPEC? No. It, it's just two different political um, cultures, and it, it would make no sense. Now, if China really – um, starts developing its its infrastructure. That's the other part, too. Even though they have reserves, they don't have the infrastructure to get it out of the country or even to use it internally. I mean, they, they don't have the pipelines and the rail and the highways that we have here. But if they would go down that route, and if they have the level of reserves that most experts, including myself, think they have, they actually could counter Russia and OPEC and the U.S. So you'd have, you know, uh, four huge oil producers out there that could actually swing prices if they need to. And just a little quick correction – I don't, hopefully I never said that the U.S. can cripple OPEC. I don't think they, we can cripple OPEC. I just think we can take away their ability to control oil prices in the very near future here in the U.S. So, um, you know, will China join OPEC? No, that won't ever happen. Could they actually become a major producer? Yes. Do I think it's going to happen in, anytime soon in the next 50 years? No. China's knock the national oil company over there is Sinopec. Is that right? There's two. Uh, there, uh, China National Oil Company is Sinoc and there's Sinopec. So there's two. Uh, on NOCs over there. I think there's actually three. I just can't remember what the third one is. But they're predominantly looking at reserves in other parts of the world, not in their backyard. The thing I'm driving at in asking that question is that we know a lot of Chinese companies and Chinese investors have come to Texas in terms of shale. And are they trying to do some sort of a knowledge transfer in doing that? Yeah, the, and, and this is this is not the show to get too deep on how our cultures are different. But basically, um, our, our, so in the U.S. and in Europe, regardless of what your religious preference is, you've been exposed to Christianity, to Judaism, um, to Islam, and, and and all three religions have right and wrong. And if you do the wrong stuff, you end up after you die somewhere bad. And if you do the right stuff, you end up somewhere good. China doesn't believe in any of that, right? They believe in reincarnation. 
So it drives, they believe they've done this a hundred times or a thousand times. So for them to steal intellectual property techniques to reverse engineer stuff, they don't see anything wrong from a cultural point of view. So absolutely, there's a bunch of very smart Chinese people here in the U.S. trying to figure out how you economically uh, produce oil from the shell place. Um, can they do it themselves? Not yet. And I've seen no indication um, that they've actually figured it out because, quite honestly, a lot of this information is not written down somewhere. It's in people's heads. Um, will they get there somewhere in the future? Yeah. Do I think they'll get there anywhere soon? No. All right. Now on to the question for me. James, you mentioned books to read from time to time. My wife is getting her degree in marketing. Awesome. And I am looking to purchase a bunch of books for her, barring me going back and re-listening to 70 plus episodes, we're almost there, to find each of your recommendations. Do you have a list already made that you could share of books that are worthwhile and beneficial to marketers? I do have a list. I will put it in the show notes at triberocket.com forward slash TW63. The two that I always start people with off the top are, first of all, Jay Bear's book, Utility, Why Smart Marketing is About Help, Not Hype. It's a phenomenal book. It's very short read. Probably knock it out in an evening or an afternoon, but it gives you a really good idea from a from a strategic and philosophical standpoint, what modern marketing is all about and how it's all about helping, not selling, just like we talked about NOV doing on the show that we recorded and that <laughs> that you're you're getting at the same time as this one. The other one would be from Mark Schaefer and Mark's book, Oh, I'm completely blanking on it right now. It's oh, the content code. Yeah, content code. It is by far the the most thorough execution book in terms of teaching you exactly how to execute and build your what he calls your your alpha audience in 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 the context of this we would call it your tribe. So those would be the two that I would start with, and then I have a whole bunch more that I can recommend, and I will put in the show notes at triberocket.com forward slash tw sixty three for you. Moving on to number four, how much of an impact do you see the continuing rise of battery-powered cars on, on the oil market? Should every car sold in the world be powered by batteries? Would that result in another downturn in the market we are currently facing, or is the percentage of gasoline sales minimal in the grand scale of things? So this is a great question. Um, <clears throat> let me start with something a lot of people don't know. In Singapore, when you input a car that's never been imported to the country before, they look at the total impact that car has on the environment. Everything from manufacturing to transportation to how much fuel it uses, and they assign it a number. So um, recently, somebody just imported a Tesla, a 100% battery-powered car. And in Singapore, when they do this math on your car, you're either given a tax break if it's a very efficient car as far as total impact on the environment, or you're not given anything if it's an average car, or you're penalized if it's worse for the environment. Once again, total impact from cradle to grave. And the Tesla got um, a fine because mm. it was so negatively impactful to the environment from, when you look at it from cradle to grave. Battery power, electric, let's not say battery. Electric power cars make a lot of sense. Uh, the reason they make a lot of sense is a gasoline or diesel engine uh, wastes a lot of energy as heat. And it has to because it has to be small enough to power the car. 
Whereas if you take um, a conventional electrical power plant, they can recapture that heat, which means they're much more efficient at turning fuels into electricity. So the, the issue is actually the battery technology. We need, we need a little bump in battery technology and then electric cars will make 100% sense. Now, I'm not dogging Tesla. I've actually driven one and I drool over it. It is, it is not electric car that's cool. It is a really awesome car that just happens to be electric. And I think that's the route we'll eventually go. Will that affect the oil and gas market? No, not at all. Because you know what? Most of what's in that Tesla is made from oil. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> all the plastics, all the rubbers, all the lastimers, all the insulation, all the wires, the computer circuits, all that comes from oil and gas. So what will happen, and we've talked about this before, as we go through time, our energy mix will change. But our use of crude oil, natural gas will continue to be high, high in demand. It just we'll use it to make other stuff other than fuels. Very, very good point. Number five. I have a number of fellow students that have previous oil field experience. The only company that comes to recruit at my school, Old Dominion University in Norfolk, uh, Virginia. I wish I knew Old Dominion's um, mascot so we could give them a shout out. But shout out to Old Dominion. What can I do as a student to increase the number of oil and gas companies to recruit on campus? Yes, this is an easy one. Since Slumberjay is out there, uh, you need to get in touch with the the um, college recruiting arms of Slumberjay's competitors, Halliburton, Baker Hughes, Weatherford, um, FMC, Cameron, um, Gene Oil and Gas, Acker, all those service companies, and hey, and go, hey, look, Slumberjay's recruiting here. When they find out Slumberjay's recruiting there, they'll send their college recruiters there too. That's an easy, easy fix. Now, I don't think that will happen this year, right? The service companies, the upstream service companies are hurting right now, but I do think you should get in touch with them. As soon as the price of crude comes back and they're struggling to hire talent, they will send droves of recruiters to, to your university in, in Virginia. So he finishes off by saying, love the show. I've been listening to you since episode one. Wow. You have heard quite a progression in quality <laughs> because things, things weren't that great back in episode one. Glad I found you guys. Keep up the great work, Jeffrey Larson. Jeffrey, we are not correcting you. We do have to say something right now because I'm looking down at the timer mark and we are 15 minutes in on one question. Yeah, so this is the first time we've had this happen. I think we're going to have to limit the number of questions. We don't mind you submitting multiple questions every month, uh, but we're going to have to limit uh, you know people to, to one or two questions just so we can keep the other people's questions in the show and not run for two hours yeah yeah we we would because i could talk that long you know mark but but um yeah if you send us you know five or six maybe we're going to pick one or two of the top ones and 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 be able to handle it that way let's move over to nick brassel brassel student at aberdeen university here's his question Dear Mark and James, thank you very much for the excellent content delivered so far. I've been a vivid listener and since uh and since you guys since you guys started the show, I believe I have listened to all the episodes. That is amazing. Probably has to do with that binging spike that we saw and we talked about on the last episode that you get today. Yeah, and it's also the first time I think I've heard somebody describe themselves as a vivid listener. A vivid listener. A vivid listener. Fantastic. I wonder if you could discuss about politics sometime and its implication in the oil industry. I particularly would like to know what a Trump versus Hillary president scenario would look like after the elections. Which candidate do oil pros back and for what reasons? Once again, Thank you for all the high-quality content so far, and keep the juice flowing. Oh, oh, we love the juice. 
It's Google juice that we're hooked on, and we're going to keep it flowing. But what do you have to say about this, Mark? Yeah, so Nick, I've actually spent a lot of time in Aberdeen. It is one of the most picturesque places in the world. It looks like a postcard. Um, unfortunately, Aberdeen's suffering right now because of these low crew prices. So, you know, for everybody in, in, in Aberdeen, you know, our hearts go out to you. If we can help you, we have the Careers Podcast. Go check it out. Uh, so the political scenario, you know, we try to stay away from politics, but this is a good question. So Hillary has already come out and said that she supports more regulation for fracking and for the oil and gas industry as a whole, which only hurts the industry. So we know where that's going to go. Trump has not really come out and said anything pro or con about the oil and gas industry, but he's a businessman. And if he gets elected president and he looks at the amount of money that the oil and gas industry gives to the federal government, which is enormous, um, the federal government is the biggest profitable, biggest uh, profiting agent in the oil and gas industry in the U.S., not the oil companies. When he sees that amount of money, I would, I cannot see him touching any of that because he wants that cash flow, right, to run the federal government. So I, I would suspect that it's it's the oil and gas industry would be better off with Trump in the office. Now, quite honestly, neither side does a good job of supporting the industry. Um, the left-wing Democrats try really hard to hurt it. They try to make us look like bad guys. Um, and But even the, the right-wing conservatives don't do anything to support it. And I've been saying this for a long time. There's been other thought leaders in oil and gas have been saying this for a long time. We need to take the oil and gas and, and energy, right, Just all of that, out of the political arena and, and a point, build a board that looks at it from a long-term point of view and doesn't look at it from a political point of view. Yeah, there's there's a lot we could go down that road, but we're not near an election. And so, I mean, we are coming up on one, but it's still a while away. And we'll just let all that unfold and we'll talk about it later. All right. We're going to move over to our, our mutual friend, Mr. Ola Wam. He is a journalism fellow at the University of Toronto Monk School of Global Affairs. Hi, Mark. I'm a major fan of yours and James Hahn's podcast. I listen to it every week. Again, thank you, Ola. It is a great way to take the pulse of the industry. I have a question you might want to raise on the Oil & Gas Careers podcast. Where are the opportunities for social scientists, political scientists, anthropologists, etc., in the oil and gas industry? This is a very interesting question. I have a background in political science and security studies. I did my thesis on the security risks faced by Shell's E&P operations in the Niger Delta, and I've written quite extensively on security-related issues in the Middle East. I'm looking to get into security risk management in the oil and gas industry, but have found it uh, really difficult to find any venues. How would I go about doing it, and do these and do these positions even exist? Thanks a million. Best regards from a massive fan of your podcast, Olawam. Thank you for being a massive fan, first of all. And second of all, Mark, what do you got to say on this? Yeah, so it's interesting. Um, that, that The need for those social scientists in oil and gas was zero 20 years ago. And now it's actually rather large on a whole bunch of reasons, right? So when the oil and gas industry goes to different countries, they have to learn how to work within that business culture. And so they need social scientists to help them understand that. When they go to recruit people from different countries, they have to understand how to manage those people. So once again, they need social scientists to help them with that. Um, when they uh, uh, have to deal with different political entities that have different drivers, once again, they need social scientists to do that. Even things like um, wildlife management, which is what my degree's in, there's actually a need for that in oil and gas because now they want to make sure when they uh, go to an area that they can mitigate any damage they do and they can actually measure uh, how they impact the environment. So that part of the industry is grown. It's huge. Um, my suggestion for, for Ola is to look at the super majors, um, 
the majors and then the large national oil companies, they're the ones with the biggest need. You can see less of a need in the independents and, and, and the service companies. Um, you know, people, people, companies like BP has a huge, huge social science arm um, that helps them uh, navigate different countries and different cultures. So the need is there. Um, now, how do you how do you get to those needs? We, um, follow the Oil and Gas Career Podcast, and we'll talk you through how how to get in front of the right person and and you know, pick up that job that you want. I'm very curious to hear. So, social science is again another thing I have not thought of in terms of the oil and gas industry. What other types of non technical positions in terms of geology, geophysicists, rig hand, so forth, are out there in the industry that that someone wouldn't naturally think of? Um, how about space scientists, right? So, <laughs> okay. so the, the super majors all have somebody that understands aerospace, knowing that maybe somewhere in the future, we might be drilling oil on another planet. There's one you probably what? never thought of. What? What? Yeah, absolutely. They're, they're, they're thinking that. about that? They, they, yeah, they, they run a business, right? And they have to look out into the future. And if you look in, out in the future, at some point, that may be a possibility. Um, the, I mentioned the wildlife management one. Um, another good one is um, executive leadership coaching. We talked about this on our the, the bonus show that we accidentally recorded. Oh, no, no. We talked about it on the um, Oil and Gas Careers podcast, right? So the leaders in this industry need to make the right decisions, and so they need coaches. And so to be a coach for an executive at Chevron, you have to know your stuff, right? This isn't somebody that's gotten some um, diploma online for, for taking a couple of courses. These are organizational development psychologists that have spent years understanding how people think and make decisions. So th there's a bunch of stuff in this industry that you wouldn't think it's there. Aviation. Chevron has a whole business unit. It's all aviation. I, you know, when they're not flying corporate people, the corporate executives around their jets, they use those airplanes for logistics, to move parts and pieces around the world. So yeah, there's a bunch in this industry you would have never one, one that I learned from you that, that's coming to mind right now is meteorologist. Yeah. Oh, everybody has meteorologists on staff because they, especially if they operate in the North Sea of Gulf of Mexico, um, they have to know the weather and they don't trust the weather channel. They want to do it themselves. And if in, in, in you as an operator, as a service company, whatever you're doing out there, you have to be operational efficient, operationally efficient, and in-tech process automation can help you with that. They created a free white paper just for our listeners. Why don't you tell them about it, Mark? Yeah, and I almost hate to call it a free white paper. What it is is they wrote a step-by-step a, a -step guide for our listeners, for our operators and our service companies out there in the field on how to decrease your cost. And that's really important in this low crude price environment. So if, if you got, um, you know, if you got some production going on, if you're out there uh, uh, punching holes in the ground, if you're a service company that, that uh, deals with the guys out in the field, especially out in the, all the different basins in the U.S., go download this white paper. It's an awesome resource. And Intech did it for free for our listeners. So, James, if they want to download it, where do they need to go? It's intechww.com forward slash podcast, intechww.com forward slash podcast. Moving on to Chris Vega. Again, uh, we don't have a company or position, but let's go ahead with the question. Hello. I have some questions for Mark concerning the factors that would influence supply and demand of crude based on pricing. And then he's got an all caps here, barriers to entry slash are they too, are they high or low? In economics, we access the, we assess that barriers to entry are a determinant of new supplier of a new supplier being able to easily or not so easily enter a market where excess demand is not met. My question is, if, if the price of crude will rise, as Mark predicts, then how easily can producers that are currently dormant jump in? 
Is there a lot of supply that can be switched on easily? Or are there long lead times that will delay their ability to participate in supply, especially for producers that have shuttered their operations because they could not afford to produce? Yeah, so I'm going to answer this, and I'm going to have two different answers to this. I'm going to talk to you about the theory, and I'm going to talk to you about the actually what's really going on here in the U.S. Before you do so that, in- shout out to Chris for the unbelievably intelligent question. This is a fantastic <laughs> question. Yeah, so here in the U.S., parts of the oil and gas industry have a very high barrier to entry, uh, specifically the subsea manufacturers, right, the guys that make the trees and the blowout preventers that sit on the ocean floor. Just to tool up to be able to make that those things, it costs so much money that it's almost impossible to have another um, supplier enter the market. That's why there's only a handful of companies that do that, the FMCs and the Actors and the Geoil and Gas and Cameron. So there's a barrier to entry that actually restricts the number of competitors in the, in the subsea market. Now, in the industry as whole, um, there's really not that much barrier to entry for operators, even ones that have shuttled their production, because all they need is cash. All they need is capital. And investors will give them the money when it makes business sense. So whether that money is $1,000 or $100 million, if it makes sense for the investor, they'll write the check, and then the guy goes into production. So that's the theory. right? That's the, Let me talk about what's actually really going on. What people miss is here in the U.S., when you, uh, when you have mineral rights and you lease those mineral rights out to an operator, um, you put contractually um, clauses in, the, in that contract where you have to keep producing no matter what the price is, right? Because if you're a mineral rights owner, you want to make your money. So <clears throat> people sign those contracts. So right now in the U.S., even though there's low, we're in a low crude price environment, people are still producing because they have to contractually. And what they're trying to do is just break even. So when you ask, is there a bunch of supply that can be switched on? <laughs> billions of barrels can be switched on in a moment's notice right here in the U.S. because we have a bunch of wells that are drilled but are not completed. Um, and the the production numbers, they're producing what they have to produce via, uh, by the contract. They could easily inflate that production. They don't want to right now um, because of low crude price. But the moment that crude price comes back, they're going to open that faucet wide open. All of these wells that are drilled aren't complete, will be completed. So you're going to see a huge um, um, jump in, in the output. The good thing here in the U.S. is we, we can now export that because we had some laws that changed just recently. So, uh, you know, hopefully, Chris, that answers your question. It's, uh, th- there's two parts to it, but there's also some other pieces in it you have to think through, like the contractual obligations of the operators. One thing I'm curious to hear your thoughts on is how the shale revolution plays into all of this, because back in the day when you were just drilling vertical wells, the you you'd get a gusher if you hit. But the probability, I mean, the number of dry holes versus versus wells drilled was much higher. And nowadays, it's, it's, it's not guaranteed that you're going to produce, but it's, it's a lot more likely. Am I wrong? You're right, but it has nothing to do with shale. It has to do with the evolution of technology, Got especially it. geoscience. Um, before... Wildcatters would go out there, and they were called wildcatters because people thought they were crazy, right? And they just drill a hole in the ground, and see if they hit oil. I mean, it would, literally was a guess. Now, with the geoscience, you know, within you know, say seventy-five or eighty percent chance of probability that not only will you hit oil and gas, but that it will be producible. So um, that change is is because of the geoscience. Um, um, still, you know, you, you, you um, operators both on land and out and offshore will will deal, uh, hit a well, and it, it won't necessarily be dry. Uh, but it won't be producible, right? It's just there's oil and gas there, but it doesn't make financial sense to get out of the ground. But they've gotten much better at it because the geoscience has gotten much better. All right, cool. So you mentioned mineral owners, and we have a question from a mineral owner. This is Kelsey Fatland. 
She's a teacher and mineral owner. Here's her question. I'm an elementary school teacher. However, my family has been lucky enough to own land in Texas that we have leased out for oil drilling for several generations. Good on you. (laughs) Good on you, Kelsey. As my parents' generation is ready to hand over land management responsibilities to me and my sister, I'm trying to learn as much as possible about the industry so I can understand all of the industry terms, the key players, the current trends, etc., so I can make educated decisions about our land. I've enjoyed listening to your podcast, but I'm wondering if there are other resources you can suggest to help me understand the most important and relevant information for my situation. I'm also looking for resources to help connect me with other landowners and managers. Thanks in advance for your help. I have a couple of responses on this one, Mark, but why don't you take it? Yeah, so it's a great question. And the good thing is you're actually doing your research. In in my experience, most people that have land that have um, recoverable minerals on it, just sign the contract every three years or five years and just take whatever. Um, when I was young um, and living in Louisiana, um, we actually lived on some, a big piece of property that had we had the mineral rights on. And we actually got approached by a company that wanted to lock up the mineral rights. And my dad did something very smart. He knew nothing about it, but he went out and did the research around it. And he ended up um, learning that what they wanted was a block. So they wanted our land, other people's lands, other people's land to get that entire block of land. So my dad went out and contacted other landowners, and they negotiated as a group, and they doubled amount of money that they were making boom right? boom yeah because my dad went out and understood so uh kelsey you're doing you're going down the right road um james has some resources to talk about one place kelsey you need to reach out to you need to reach out to um uh, the new frackers.org we'll get a link in the show notes for you um but you need to um thomas clay is a buddy of mine he wrote the book he has a great website he does a lot of this stuff for free because he's trying to help so reach out to thomas clay use my name and just have a chat with him he's gonna be a great resource for you what resources do you have, Jet James? Yeah, that's just a great resource, Thomas. Good man. Back in the day, I was a newbie. Believe it or not, listeners, I do know some things about oil and gas that I didn't know six years ago. And when I first started in 2010, Drilling Info, we were the first people that started a blog and started inbound marketing, thanks to Alan Gilmer, Gilmer giving me the green light on that. The first blog I wrote was an answer to my frustration in not being able to find any information out there in terms of oil and gas. And so I have a blog that's still up over there at drillinginfo.com. It's called Seven Free Resources for Newbies in Oil and Gas. And I I go through, you know, seven free resources and it's if if you thoroughly dig into those, especially Schlumber J has a fantastic, fantastic um, oil field glossary online, and then you can also access Drilling Info's glossary for free in their help text. So you can get that that link in the show notes at triberocket.com forward slash TW63. The other one I would definitely strongly encourage you to get involved in is the Texas Independent Producers and Royalty Owners Association. They are all about exactly what you're trying to accomplish here, which is to learn about the industry, connect with other mineral owners, and they have annual meetings, they have local chapters. It's a fantastic organization, and they, they are set up just for you, just for you as the independent royalty owner that you are. So if you Google seven free resources for newbies in oil and gas, you'll get that. It'll be in the show notes. And then also it's tipro.org, T-I-P-R-O.org. And, of course, the link will be in the show notes. All right. 
Let's go over to Carter Newman. Unfortunately, Carter, you don't have to give us the frowny face. He says just a student for the frowny face. Students, Carter, that should not be. That should be a super smiley face. Students are, are some of our favorite people. I think maybe he's he's just really wanting to get out in the field. And as I said when I replied to you on email, Carter, just keep grinding, brother. You're gonna get there. All right, here's his question, dear Mark and James. First, I sincerely thank you both and whoever works behind the scenes, Paige and Mark Pillsbury and other people that help out the show, for the high-quality content and audio of This Week in Oil and Gas. What oil and gas career possibilities exist in North Carolina, South Carolina, or Tennessee? By December, I will be completing my finance and entrepreneurship majors at Elon University, a small liberal art school in North Carolina. Since January, I have fallen in love with the oil and gas industry. I know you're, I know the feeling, Carter. Between my schoolwork, boxing training, wow, we got a boxer, and being in a mediocre band that covers <laughs> Freebird too often. Play Freebird! Sorry, I had to do that. I, I have been working through two books, Energy Finance and Economics and Oil and Gas Company Analysis. I've also incorporated what I've learned into all my finance class projects. However, there is not a single professor at my university involved in oil and gas, nor any nearby in- internship possibilities. Also, I have, I have my heart set on anywhere around Nashville to be near my brother and a good music scene. I can appreciate that, being from Detroit, great music scene. Frankly, I'm not quite sure where I would fit in the, in the industry any advice is appreciated. What do you have for Carter? I got you covered, brother. So go check out BP in Morristown, Tennessee. They have a big office there. <laughs> and they're kind of a big oil and gas company. Um, you kind may of. also want to look at uh, Beach Oil in Clarksville, Tennessee, um, and uh, Cumberland Oil in, also in Nashville. So um, there's oil and gas companies there. You just have to search for them. Um, and how would you fit there with a the finance uh, background and entrepreneurship? i tell you what you need to do. You need to go uh, first apply at BP and see if you can get in um, in their finance department and learn what they do and then start thinking about starting your own business. What would you have him do as his own business? So once he learns, like, let's say uh, Ford's uh, future crudes accounting or whatever, he can then start his own business doing that for other oil and gas companies. Yeah, and he can do it from anywhere. Just from like, anywhere. Just, yeah. just like myself personally, a lot of people don't know. The entire first year I was in business, I didn't even live in Houston. Nope. Didn't even live in Houston. North Carolina? I I actually was in North Idaho, and then I was in Greenville, South Carolina. South Carolina, right, right, right. Yeah, Greenville, South Carolina. So, yeah, that's a really, really great point. I didn't even think of that. Yeah, start your own business. First, go work for BP or one of the oil companies I mentioned, right? You need to get that education experience. You can't fake that. You can't buy that. But while you're learning that, look at other business opportunities since you have that entrepreneur um, um, education and start thinking about doing your own thing somewhere down the road and do it while you're making money at BP. So you don't have to be stressing over you know, cash. Yeah, and the Nashville Predators doing well in the playoffs. So you've got that hockey tie in there as well. All right, let's wrap things up with, with our good friend and, and always submitter of fantastic questions, this time holding off on stumping Mark. <laughs> Bart Christer, he is he says sales manager at Terra Guidance. He's really one of the one of the main guys that started the company. And here's his question. If Chevron is deal is drilling near 
at nine is drilling north at 90 feet per hour and Exxon is 1.5 miles north s- <laughs> south at 200 feet per hour but Exxon will need to take 16 uh, t- take a 16 hour bit trip which rig will the wheels be closer to when they collide just kidding here's the real question <laughs> one of our clients is drilling as usual despite the price cash be uh, be Goodness, I am butchering this question. Let me start over. One of our clients is drilling as usual despite the price crash because they had barrel prices hedged through 2018. What does this mean and what types of companies would an operation be hedged with? Yeah, so Bart's question as we go through time makes my head hurt more and more and more. I started (laughs) off asking easy questions and now he's asking some extremely complex questions. All right. Hedging is basically when you sign a contract guaranteed a price in the future, a future price. The person that owns that contract can trade that contract um, on on like the the New York Stock Exchange, right? So there's six types of energy future contracts you can trade, one of which is hedging. So so basically what Bart's um, client did is they guaranteed a price contractually through 2018. Now, you would go, well, how does that help or hurt a company? Just imagine, so if you're an operator and you think the price is going to be around $40 a barrel, but you need cash, you can then hedge that at $39 a barrel, which means you sign a contract saying for the next three years or two years, whatever, you'll sell it at $39 a barrel. Well, somebody will buy that because they go, okay, if, if it's going to be $40 a barrel and you're committing to sell it to me for $39, i will make money. See how that works? But then the operator gets the cash for the next two or three years at that price point. So it's 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 a bit like playing poker. There's some gambling involved in this, but future contracts are huge. People make billions of dollars trading future contracts. And it's part of the financial risk assessment model of the oil and gas industry, right? You hedge things so that you can have guaranteed cash flow for X amount of time. Does that make sense? It makes sense. And myself being from the Midwest, just to bring it even more practical, farmers do this all the time. Oh, yeah. It's not just an oil and gas thing. All kinds, even even like automobiles manufacturers hedge um, raw components, steel, aluminum, whatever. So it's, it's, it's a financial, um, it's, it's a way to, to minimize financial risk in, in almost any type of business. All right. So those are all of our questions. Thank you, everyone, for submitting. We still don't have a voicemail. We'll get to that in a second. Mark gets to tolerate a second weekly onion. How much, how cool is that? Let's Let's hear him cringe right now. Uh, the Weekly Onion, uh, number two for the week. Coworker wondering if anyone interested in laying bare their physical shortcomings in basketball league this year. The question I have for you, Mark, is did you ever get any MMA leagues going uh, back at Bell South? Any, any MMA links? <laughs> any, any MMA leagues. Did, did they allow that at Bell South? Or? <laughs> oh, yeah. So back when I was at Bell, I was, I was hot and heavy because I was much younger, and it was very common for me to come to work with one or two black eyes, <laughs> and eventually these people got used to it. <laughs> yeah, and I've heard you say uh, more than once that the recovery time is just too much. That's why. Now it's just way too much. I'm 50 years old, and it takes me it – literally, it takes me months to recover. Yeah, probably an HR issue doing it in the office, though. Probably. All right. So we don't have a winner because we announced the winner on the show that you're getting at the same time as this one. But Red Wing's still a fantastic company. We still have an amazing interview coming with them next week. And I will let you talk about Red Wing for a moment. 
Yeah, so everybody knows Red Wing for their boots. I mean, even I own a couple pairs of their boots. But Red Wing also is a fantastic supplier and manufacturer of protective clothing, PPE. So if you're out there in the field, uh, offshore and land, whatever, and you require protective clothing, flame-resistant clothing, uh, hard hats, whatever, look at Red Wing, right? And if you run a company that your people need that, you really need to check Red Wing out. So not only do they have an eye for quality like nobody else has, but they also are a one-stop shop, which saves you time and money and makes sure that your people are safe. So uh, James and I both have a very good uh, personal and professional relationship with Red Wing, and we know they're legit. So if you have a need for their stuff, go check it out. And if you don't have a need for their stuff, still go check it out. They're a great company, been around forever, um, really take pride in doing a good job. One of the things that I learned from Tito, actually, just walking up at the end of one of his interactions with, with someone walking through the booth, is the fact that even when things are, are manufactured offshore, they still get shipped back to America for quality control. They're still sourced yeah, I, from here. I mean, that's, that is their competitive differentiator, right? They, they, they take quality is, is, is the number one thing they look for. And if it doesn't meet their quality standards, it won't get, go, go off the door. Yeah. And so since we are pushing out two shows on the same day today, then every, you get double the chances. You can't enter more than once. But if you hear this one but not the last one, you can – register to win one of our red wing offshore bags one of their red wing offshore bags mine is amazing i've carried all my podcast equipment in, in all over otc and, and it, it's just a rugged bag that works well there is no purchase necessary you can see the official site for rules and detail that's redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast we usually go into events but you already heard that on the show that we just pushed out and yeah, let's back up let's back up to the bag do you know how many people at otc offered me money for one of those bags <laughs> really cold. i didn't hear that yeah, part. it's crazy i had somebody offer me five hundred dollars for one of these bags so um they're in high demand in the oil field so uh if you want one register it's it's free for you to register and if you win you'll have something that you can go turn around and sell on ebay if you want to make some cash <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is hilarious. I didn't know they were in such high demand. I was surprised when the people from World Oil stopped by and, and thanked Chris for sponsoring the show. That was super, super cool. Um, yeah, that, that was awesome. So think about that, people. The head of World Oil flew in for OTC to UK from the UK, and he went to the Red Wing booth and thanked them for sponsoring our show. That's awesome. Yeah, it's just really fantastic, and it wouldn't happen without you listening. So thank you. As it was going into, we already covered events, so we're going to skip over that. Um, I'm also going to cut the first Friday Q&A part out of the show that we're pushing out today because we said we, it's the last call. Well, it turned out we recorded the wrong show, so you now have one month to leave me a voicemail. Come on, leave me a voicemail. Yeah, we need somebody, somebody on their desktop. You can't do it from mobile. On the desktop, go to the website, click on leave a voicemail, and leave us a voicemail. <laughs> Come on, people. It's not, I've actually had a bunch of people tell me they they don't want to hear their voice, and it's like, stop it. Just leave us a voicemail. You might get discovered by Hollywood. 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 Yeah. Or 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 maybe we, we have a good .5 episode based off of uh, your question, interview interview based off your question. The LinkedIn group, I gave an update on numbers in the in the regular show that we recorded. And even since then, we've had, I don't even know, dozens and more more at joining. So the LinkedIn group is blowing up, Mark. Yeah, go join people. If you listen to podcasts and you haven't joined the LinkedIn group, you are missing out. Takes 10 seconds. Go join. You'll be glad you did.
Yeah, and everybody that is in the LinkedIn group, please, by all means, share share your links there in terms of stories because I'm getting a lot of people sending me private messages, a lot of people sending me emails and so forth. The LinkedIn group is the best place because then we can get a conversation going around these topics and then I can also tweet those out and we can we can see how they perform on Twitter and maybe they get talked about on the show. All right, we have three new reviews, Mark, which as you know, always makes me very, very happy. So we're going to kick it off. We have five stars, very informative from J.A.D. Green. I like to stay updated on the highlights of the industry, and James and Mark do a, a great job covering the happenings in oil and gas in a way that's easy to follow. It's nice, it's nice to find a place in media that is a positive outlook on, on the oil field and the people in it. Keep it up, guys. Yeah, amen, amen, uh jd green uh, we agree with you too it's it's not enough positive stuff out there about our industry and we need more of it i'm, I'm just really excited he said that we're part of the media <laughs> so um that could be a good or a bad thing but since we're putting a positive spin on things that's a great thing we have five stars as well from i think you're great <laughs> great resources for software pros this this really speaks to your your sweet spot mark in terms of helping technology companies, software companies sell into oil and gas. Taking a minute to highly recommend this great podcast, keeping us all up to speed on everything going on in the oil and gas universe. Pairing your technology with oil and gas business drivers isn't easy. Being a Silicon Valley vet living in Houston and trying to learn about the industry, I found this podcast particularly useful and use what I learn every day to communicate better with my customers. To top it off, the two hosts of the show are incredibly generous with their time and always willing to answer any questions you have. Hey, we promise, audience, we didn't pay this guy to do this. We, we <laughs> yeah. promise. We yeah, what promise. a great compliment. Um, I, awesome, awesome, awesome. By I think you're great. Yeah, awesome stuff. Not, in, 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 I didn't include it because it's not a review, but you got um, another, I think it was a LinkedIn message, and the guy said, hey, I don't even work in oil and gas, but some of my clients do. And I'm loving the show. So this is great to see, to see the reach grow. Our last one, uh, President, is the name of, the, is the, name of the, the review by Tanks and Vessels. Five stars. This podcast is a great tool to keep an overview of oil, uh, to keep up on an overview of the oil and gas industry news of the week. I've developed a great respect for Mark LaCour's commentary on the industry. Keep the episodes coming. Well, as you can see today, we're, we got two coming. <laughs> So, we, do too. <laughs> we did too. So we're going to keep them coming. And if they want to leave us a review, why? Why should they do these things, Mark? You should leave us a review because it helps us reach more people. So you may not know this, but you should if you listen to the podcast. I say this every week. <laughs> the reviews help us rank higher in the search engines and in, um, and in iTunes. So do me a favor. Take the minute and a half. Leave us a review. It helps us reach more people, which means we can help even more people learn the right things and the correct things and the good things about the oil and gas industry. Absolutely. And you can do that by going to triberocket.com forward slash TW reviews takes you straight in the iTunes store where you can leave that review. If you've made it this far in the show, please share it with your friends, your coworkers, anybody that, that might give us a download. We love all downloads and triberocket.com forward slash share LI. We'll share it on LinkedIn forward slash share TW. We'll share it on Twitter forward slash share FB. We'll share it on Facebook. Mark, I usually ask if you're ready to go. Personally, 
I've got some shows to produce and some and some blog posts, show notes to put together. So I'm ready to go. How about you? Yep. So folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Go find some grease, guys. I'm really shocked by the number of people that recognized us. That was yeah. it's it's cool in a lot of ways, um, but every now and then it takes me off guard when I have somebody that I have no idea who it is come running up to me. It's like, man, I hope they don't have a gun. <laughs>